Okay, so let's cultivate our motivation. And again, appreciate this opportunity we have to listen to the Dharma and to put all of our heart and all of our energy into it. And not only when we're listening to the teachings, but after we've heard them too, really review what we've heard and think about what we've heard. Put it into practice so that it really influences us. And let's do this with a big mind that takes into consideration the welfare of all beings. Seeing that others suffer as much as we do and want happiness as much as we do. And so instead of isolating ourselves from all sentient beings, and thinking that we're unique and special and our happiness and suffering are more important. Let's look out for the welfare of each and every living being and to do this in the best way to aim for full enlightenment. important not just to listen to the teachings but to really review your notes and think about them Um, I've noticed some people think oh it's nice to have uh, oral teachings but what I really learn is from reading books you know like what it says in a book is more authentic than what you hear uh, from your teacher yeah, I see that in, in some people. And so, uh, you know, for study time, they read lots of books, but the oral teachings, they don't review them and think about them. When I was uh, learning the Dharma at the beginning, there were no books, <laughs> or there were very few books, and the books that there were usually had a lot of errors in them in translation and so forth, because... Nobody was very good at that, uh, about translation, at translation at that time. And so we had to completely depend on our teachers for everything we knew. And that made a huge difference because um, then when you listen, you know, and you think about it, and afterwards you review it and you come back the next week with, you know, or the next day with questions because you've been studying it and thinking about it and, and all. And, uh, and also because you're getting the teachings from a live person, you feel the, the weight of, you know, this is something that's meant to be practiced, that some, you know, somebody who's trying it to, pra- to practice it themselves is teaching me how to practice. Yeah. So I find it funny that, that often people um, will, uh, won't review their notes, but they'll read uh, a book that is a transcription of the teaching. Yeah? 
And sometimes the transcription of the teaching, you know, you have more errors in it because the transcriber didn't hear it. Yeah. And, or it wasn't checked or whatever. So, um, you know, I think it's really good to, to try and, and think about and use what you hear and not just think, oh, that's nice, but the real teachings are what I read. You know, like what's written in a book is better. Yeah. But if you look, you know, how did the books get written? It's from mostly from oral teachings. All the sutras are from the oral teachings of the Buddha. Yeah. So, good just to, to keep that in mind, you know, when we're learning. Okay, so somebody asked a question. And he said, I think I understand the concept behind the body and the parts of the body argument, but I get hung up on the logic of the example. Okay, so do you remember from last week? We were talking, oh, I didn't review my notes. I don't remember what we talked about last week. Um <laughs> Well, maybe a couple of people reviewed their notes. Um, we were talking about the body and, you know, what is the relationship between the word body and what that word refers to? What is the body that we are calling body? What, you know, where can we identify that body? What can we identify that body as? Okay, so... Uh, he said, if this body were located with a portion in each of these parts and its parts are located in their parts, where does it stand by itself? Okay, so that's what we were, we were looking at. Okay, so he says, when I last went to the grocery store, I bought a dozen eggs. Each, eggs was, each egg was a part of the dozen. For the dozen eggs to exist, the 12 individual eggs had to be present. When one of the eggs was removed, the concept of a dozen eggs no longer existed. Very true. But the question is, where does the dozen eggs exist? Okay. When you have all 12, you have a dozen eggs. But what is the dozen eggs? Is it the first egg, the second egg? When, when do you have a dozen, you know, which egg is the dozen? Yeah. One of the eggs is not the dozen, is it? You know, it's the group. But the group is made of things that aren't the dozen. And yet when you have this group and your mind puts a concept around it that makes it into a unit, then we say a dozen eggs. But none of those eggs is a dozen. And you can't find a dozen eggs separate from that collection. And the collection itself isn't a, isn't a dozen because the collection is made up of non-dozens. Okay. So 12 non-dozens doesn't make a dozen. <laughs> Twelve oranges don't make an apple. Okay? So that's what, that's what we're looking at, you know. 
what what are we really referring to when we say a dozen eggs? And it's interesting to think about, you know, which egg makes the dozen? Because when you have 11, you don't have a dozen. So is the dozen in the last egg? If the dozen were in the last eggs, then all you would need is one egg to have a dozen. Okay. I'm stuck on this because I know that none of the eggs or parts are the dozen, mm-hmm. but I always kind of fall to just the collection. Yeah. Of non-egg, right. Non-dozen. Right, and that's that's what we usually fall to. You know, we say, okay, each part isn't one of them. It's the whole thing together. It's the gestalt. But the whole. The thing is, if we look at what is a collection, yeah, a collection is only an assembly of parts. And none of the parts are the whole. Yeah. And the assembly doesn't exist independent of its parts. If you could find the collection independent of the parts of the collection, then you could say that you know, the the object was the collection. But as soon as you can only identify the collection by identifying the parts, then the object you're referring to is dependent on parts. If it's dependent on parts, it doesn't inherently exist. It's dependent on parts. It doesn't exist without the parts. Yeah. But we we have this thing, you know, like I was talking about before, sometimes we have the idea of kind of like there's this rough outline of, of the car, you know, and that's the car and then you put the you put the parts in. Yeah. So this rough outline is the car and you put the parts in. But if you ask yourself what is this outline of which I am filling it in with the parts, where are you gonna find that? There's nothing there. Yeah. Yeah. Other times we have the feeling like there's all these parts and the car is roaming around somewhere within the car, within all the parts. Yeah. But when you examine within all those parts, you don't find a car anywhere. None of the parts are a car. And the space between the parts aren't a car. And there's absolutely no car there. Okay, so this is why we keep bringing ourselves back to this kind of analysis. Because when we don't, then, like you said, you, we just kind of say, "Well, it's the collection." Yeah, it's the collection. But when you look, I think it's, it's quite interesting because, like, when we think of cities, you know, when we think of like Spokane. It seems very truly existent. You know, there's Spokane right there on the map. That's Spokane. I can draw my, a line around Spokane. Okay. But what is Spokane? Is it the people? Is it the building? Is it the roads? Yeah. And which Spokane? The Spokane of, you know, 1911 or the Spokane of 2011? Which is Spokane? And from yesterday to today, Spokane changed. They built something, they tore something down, people moved in the city, people left the city. 
So even the base on which we're labeling Spokane is changing, you know. We can't find something that is it right there. And yet we feel when we say Spokane or Newport or the Abbey, we feel like it's some truly existent thing out there. But it isn't. It's completely dependent on parts. Okay. Okay, so then he says, while I understand that a dozen eggs is not inherently existent, I don't know if there's a good logical refutation. Well, I just gave it. Okay, another example. If this sentence were located with a portion in each of these words, and the letters are located in these words, where does the sentence stand by itself? And his answer, it stands by itself as the sum of its parts. Stands by itself as the collection. But the sum of its parts, something that is a sum of parts, can't stand by itself because it depends on the parts. So to say it stands by itself as the sum of the parts is contradictory. Because to stand by itself, it has to not depend on anything else, which means it's not going to depend on its part. It's going to stand there by its own power, really and truly. And that's the way we feel about ourself, isn't it? Here I am. I stand by myself, really and truly me, right here. Or when, you know, you're really fond of somebody or when you really are agitated and dislike somebody, it seems like there's a real person there. Real person. But what? You know, what's that real person? Where are you going to find it? And it's, it's so amazing, especially, I find this very effective, you know, when you get attached to somebody, like... Oh, I love this person so much. And then you ask yourself, who are they? Yeah? Who's this person I love so much? Is it their body? Is it their mind? If they had a different body, would I love them as much? If their body were 40 years older or 40 years younger, would I love them just as much? Which body are they? The young body or the old body? We say, oh, I love their mind. But which mind? You know, one day they're happy, next day they're sad, one day they praise, they praise us, next day they complain. Which mind are they? Yeah. So when you really look, you can't find anything. Okay, so we'll, we'll continue here. Okay, so an independent body doesn't exist within the parts. We talked about that, okay? Could it be separate from the parts? It can't be. In the same way that you can't have a dozen eggs separate from the eggs, you can't have a body separate from its parts. Because if you could find a body that were separate from its parts, it would mean you could have the arms and legs and intestines and everything here and the body over there. 
Yeah, if you if there were a person that were separate from its parts, the bot the body and mind could be over here, and the person could be over there. Okay, but that doesn't work. Okay, because the whole thing is that a collection is by definition made up of different parts. Yeah, it's not some kind of unified, independent whole. It's only the power of our conceptual mind that makes these parts into an object. By themselves, they don't have that objectness in them. It's only because we look and we put those parts together and give it a label. And I think part of this relates to early childhood development, you know, because when we're infants, we just see all these colors and shapes and we can't put them together to make objects. Yeah? We don't know. There's all these colors and shapes, but we don't know what's close, what's far. You know, there's no conceptual mind, or the conceptual mind doesn't have the ability at that time to put pieces together and to see them as a separate object. Yeah. And so a good deal of our education is basically learning how to label things, <laughs> what sense data to put together and consider as a big whole and give a label to. Yeah. Good part of our education. Because, like, when you're teaching a child, you know, oh, that's called an elephant, and that's called a table. You know, we think, okay, there's the real table and the real elephant. We're just teaching them the words that go with the object. But actually, we're not. We're teaching them how to pick out details from the environment and conceptually hold them together and give them a label and see them as distinct from other things. Much more than just learning the word. Okay, so the collection of the parts of the body is not a body. Yeah, and the collection, you know, comes by, again, conceptuality. Yeah. Okay, so we'll go on to the next verse, which is verse 83. And it says, Thus a body is not, in parentheses, truly existent. But because of ignorance, the mind perceiving, in parentheses, a truly existent body in the hands and so forth arises. Like the mind perceiving a person in an effigy because the effigy is shaped in the form of a person. Okay? So instead of effigy, let's use a scarecrow. Or a mannequin. Actually, that's a good example. A mannequin. Yeah. So... A body's not truly existent, but because of ignorance, the mind perceives a body, a real body, in the hands and the parts. Okay, And it's the same way that a mind looks at a mannequin and sees a person. Okay? Or looks at a person in the television and sees a person. Or looks at a scarecrow and sees a person. Yeah. Because the mannequin is shaped in the form of a person. 
So this is kind of like the same as the, the famous example of the rope and the snake. You, you see something, um, um, uh, what's it called, speckled and coiled, and it's dim light, and you say, oh, there's a rope, but it's really a snake. So in the same way, the light may be dim, and you walk in a room, and there's a mannequin, and you go, because ah, you think there's a thief in the house, but there's a ma- it's just a mannequin. Okay? Or you're walking down the road, and you see a person down there, and you think, oh, you know, I'm going to go see how, the, you know, I'm going to go see Sally down the road and talk to her. And then you get there, and you realize Sally, <laughs> what you thought was Sally is a scarecrow. Okay? So it's a wrong consciousness. Yeah? We're mistaking things. That's a wrong consciousness. We aren't knowing the object correctly. But it's very similar to this thing of thinking that all the parts are a truly existent body. Yeah? In, in the, the same way that we label person on a mannequin, we label body on the parts. We label snake on the rope. So all those things, you know, there's labeling and conceptuality going on there. But there's a difference between labeling body on the legs and hands and those things and labeling labeling person on a mannequin. What's the difference? Function? What do you mean? A mannequin can't eat. Yeah, a mannequin can't eat. Yeah, so the mannequin can't function as a person. Yeah. Whereas the parts of the body can function as a body. Yeah, the rope can't function as the snake. But the twine, but, but, the, but the living being, you know, there, can function as a snake. Yeah, so, you know, there's suitable ways of using words and unsuitable ways of, of using words according to what we have collectively decided to call something. Yeah. Before we all came to know the word, you know, society, person and mannequin. I mean, person and mannequin are just sounds. We could have usually used the, the sound mannequin to refer to what we now use the sound person to refer to and vice versa. And then we would all agree. But once we've agreed that a person refers to this and a mannequin refers to that, then if you call that a mannequin, I mean, you call that a person, it's a wrong consciousness. Yeah, because it can't function as such. So it's a very similar thing with calling the parts of the body a body. It's as, you know, misconstrued as calling a person a mannequin. I mean, a mannequin a person. Because when you look in what's there, in the mannequin, there is absolutely no person there. You look up, down, and across, there is absolutely no person. In the same way, when we look in the hands and the torso and the intestines and the pancreas and the toes, there is no body there. But our mind says, that sounds good, but actually there is a body. 
Yeah. Do Do you see how how we're 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 not seeing those two things as exactly the same, are we? Oh yeah. Everybody knows that a mannequin's not a person, but this really is a body. Yeah. Sure. You know, you can't find the body here. You can't find the body there. But it's a body. Do you see? Do you see? What we're grasping at when we're thinking that way, that's the object of negation. Yeah? Because we still think there is a body there. Yeah, it's not the hands, it's not the toes, it's not the pancreas. But there's a body. But actually, when you really look at it and you take all those parts and put them all around, there is no body there, is there? Absolutely no body in the same way that there is no person in the mannequin and there is no snake in that rope. Absolutely no snake in that rope. Absolutely no no person, no body in that collection of parts. But we don't really believe it. Yeah? We're holding on to, the, that's the object of negation. Yeah? Yes. Yes. All the parts are foul, but boom, you put them back together and your mind just goes, oh, there's an attractive person again. Right. Right. Okay. So is this the same thing? Like when you do the meditation on the foulness of the body and you look and you know, you take somebody's ear, you know, is is that attractive, you know, their ear sitting on the table, or maybe their skin, you know, you peel off their skin and their skin's just kind of pile there, not so attractive. Or maybe their eyes, you know, just two eyeballs there. Or maybe their teeth, yeah, you know, you have their teeth kind of sitting there. Or the lips. You know, just two lips, you know, two <laughs> maybe separate, one upper lip here and lower lip there. <laughs> yeah? When, when, and that's just the outside of the body. We're not even looking at the inside of the body. If we start looking at the inside of the body, you know, we put their intestines out there, you know, maybe their kidneys. <laughs> Yeah, some blood, some lymph, some sweat. <laughs> yeah, is any of it very attractive? Blah. No. But then, you know, when we look at the parts separately, not attractive. But then we kind of put the parts together and, wow, that person's good looking. <laughs> so what we're seeing here is how out of touch with reality our mind is. Yeah? The fact that when we really look and examine, there is nothing gorgeous about the body. It's all very unattractive and foul. But then, our ignorant mind just goes, wow, that person's so good looking. And you can see how that's completely ignorant, isn't it? 
totally ignorant because you looked. And especially, you know, that pile of skin, you know, just kind of sitting there. Is that so good looking? <laughs> you know? So, you we see how, you know, well, Lama Yeshi used to say we don't need to take drugs because we're hallucinating already. <laughs> You're seeing this is how we're hallucinating. Yeah? We're seeing this body as beautiful. We're seeing this... We're seeing these parts as a real body to start with. Okay. Yeah? Um, there are two questions. Uh-huh. First, from John. Um, I have it. Um, you provide further explanation how the mind perceiving the body is a wrong consciousness. Further, what is the right consciousness? Okay. So how is the mind perceiving the body a wrong consciousness? On a conventional level, it's, it's an okay consciousness. Okay, on the conventional level. But thinking, saying that that's a body, but thinking that there's a real body there, that's completely, there's, there's no real body there. Okay? So in a conventional way, when we don't analyze, we say there's a body. We don't say there's a tree trunk. Okay? But, you know, when we're really analyzing what is the body, there's absolutely no body there. So what is the correct consciousness? The mind that sees the emptiness of inherent existence of that of the body. That's the correct mind. Because that mind sees the body as it truly is. Okay? Our mind that sees a, a you know a body there in the parts is hallucinating. It's out of touch with reality. The mind that sees the emptiness of the body is the mind that sees what the body really is. Okay. Does that correct consciousness include the knowledge of the conventional? Okay. There we're talking about the correct consciousness, meaning we're really investigating what the body is. Okay? So the body is empty of inherent existence. On a conventional level, we say there's a body... And that's okay, that's correct on the conventional level, but it's mistaken because when we say that's a body, our mind is thinking of a truly existent body. So it's mistaken because that body is appearing truly existent to us on the conventional level. Okay. Yeah? Is it correct to say that the body or whatever entity exists as interdependent relationships or fractals with everything else around us. Okay. So, is it correct to say the body or anything else exists uh, in, in a dependent relationship with everything else around us or depending on everything else around us? Yeah. It yeah. exists as interdependent relationships. A- as an interdependent relationship? Okay. Um... The body exists by being merely labeled upon the base, yeah, but it it does exist dependently, okay, and it exists dependent on its parts, but it's also existing dependent on the things around us too, you know it's because 
there are inanimate things that we also have animate things. Yeah, that's because there are things that are not bodies that we have bodies. You know, because again, our mind is conceptually isolating things. Okay, so the conventional body exists dependent on other things. Yeah, we say that. Okay. So, um, so the mind imputes body to the mannequin due to the arrangement of its parts in the same way the mind, uh, I mean the mind, our mind imputes person to the mannequin because of the arrangement of the parts in the same way that we impute body to the arrangement of the arms and legs and, and those parts. Okay. But there's no person in the mannequin and no body in those parts. Okay. Because the mannequin can't function as the person, the parts can't function as the body. Okay. So a nominally existent person is present and or a nominally existent body is present and this body is imputed independence upon all those parts. So we say, sometimes it's said the body is mere name. Now, when they say the body is mere name, it doesn't mean that the body, because a name is a sound, it doesn't mean that the body is a sound. Okay, when we say the body is mere name, it doesn't mean the body is a sound. It, what it means is, the body exists by being merely named or labeled independence upon the parts. Okay, that's what it means. Yeah. So when we say it, it is merely labeled, mere excludes it from existing from its own side. Yeah. So merely labeled really emphasizes that there's nothing there on the side of the base. Merely labeled on the base. Sometimes you get this funny feeling when you say it, you know. It's like, there's the base, and the object is not there. It's merely labeled. Yeah? Merely labeled. But it's not there. It's not there. There's no body there. But it's just merely labeled on that base. Yeah. Feels kind of funny, doesn't it? What do you mean merely labeled? There is a body there. No, there's not. Okay? So mere really excludes it existing from its own side. And exists from its own side. So verse 84, for as long as the conditions persist, the body of the effigy is seen as a person. Likewise, for as long as there is grasping at true existence of the hands and so forth, they are seen as the body. So as long as the conditions persist, okay, the body um, or, the, or the effigy or the mannequin is seen as a person. Okay, so as long as it's dim and the lighting isn't so good and the mannequin's standing there in, 
a way that a person would stand, as long as those conditions exist, we're going to say there's a person there, even though there's only a mannequin. When those conditions cease, when we turn on the light, yeah, when we go knock on the mannequin and realize it's made out of plastic or resin or whatever they make them out of, then we realize, oh, there's no person there. Okay? So in the same way, as long as the conditions exist, we will see a, tr you know, a body in the parts. And what are the, those conditions? It's the ignorance grasping at true existence. So as long as we have that ignorance grasping at true existence, we're going to see, you know, a body in those parts. whereas there's nobody. Where, but when we generate the wisdom that sees things as they are, the wisdom realizing suchness or emptiness, then that stops the condition to see a real body in those parts. And then we stop seeing a real body in those parts. Yeah. Then we can see that the body is is simply what's labeled in dependence upon those parts. Yeah, like the word body is just a shortcut instead of saying that assembly of two arms and two legs and a pancreas and two, you know, this and that and the other thing. It takes a long time to say all of that. Yeah, so you just say body as a shorthand. But we're not content with body as a shorthand. We think there's a body in that base. Okay, so we're confusing the the object that's labeled with the basis of labeling. Okay, so um, this this concludes the section that show that shows that the whole or what they call part possessor in Tibetan, the the literal translation for whole is part possessor. Um, in this case, the body lacks true existence, okay? So it's showing that anything that's a whole lacks true existence. Then our mind thinks, okay, well maybe the whole lacks true existence, but the parts are truly existent. The parts are real. I mean, after all, there's got to be something real around here. Okay? So there's two more verses, verses 85 and 86 of chapter 9 in Shantideva, where he says, Similarly, what is the hand, since it is a collection of fingers, which are moreover a collection of joints? Okay. By dividing the joints into parts, and dividing the parts into particles, and the particles into directional parts, since the directional parts are without in parentheses, truly existent parts. Like space, particles as well do not, in parentheses, truly exist. Okay. So we might say, okay, the body exists by, by being labeled, but the parts of the body are real. But then, so in, in that kind of framework, the hand is a part. Okay. But you can also look at the hand as a whole. Okay, in which case the hand is the whole and it has parts, all the different fingers and the palm. 
So then you look within this basis of designation, the fingers and the palm, and you ask yourself, what is the hand? Okay, is there a hand in each finger? Yeah, is there part of a hand in each finger? Is the hand the assembly of the parts? Is there a hand that's separate from the parts? So you do the same analysis you did for the body using the hand, using the, you know, the gallbladder, using the liver. Yeah. And every single part of the body, when you analyze it, it consists of further parts. Okay. So parts of the hand, you have the palm and the five fingers. Then you take a finger. Well, what's, you know, the finger also depends on parts. You have this joint and this joint and this joint. Yeah, so the finger is also dependent. There's no finger there. I mean, which, which is the finger? Is it this joint or this joint or this joint or the front side or the back side or the skin or the muscle or the tendon? What are you going to point to as the finger? Okay. So, so then you look at its parts and you dissect it. And then that, you know, all of the parts of the finger, all of the joints, they too have smaller parts. And those parts also have smaller parts. And they have more smaller parts. And so then we're going to say, well, what's the smallest part? Okay? And so in science... Some scientists are looking for what is the smallest part out of which everything can be constructed. Yeah, there's got to be some smallest thing that if you put a bunch of them together, you get, you know, something bigger. But the difficulty with that is that everything can be subdivided. Yeah. In some of the, the ancient Buddhists, what they did is they said, okay, you get to a place where there is a smallest part, yeah, and it doesn't have any directions, it doesn't, or it doesn't have any parts, you know. Mm-hmm. It's so small that it doesn't have any parts. It's a partless particle, okay. But then you say, if it's a, if it's a particle that doesn't have any parts, then how can it join together with other particles to make something bigger? Because when things join together, they have to touch. So if they touch, they only touch on one side. Because if they touched on all sides, then they would merge and become completely one and occupy the same space, which they don't. So that means they have to have directions. You know, a front and a back and a north and south and east and west because that enables them to touch with other smaller part particles. So they aren't partless particles. They have parts. Yeah. So everything you look at is going to be dependent on parts. You can't find a smallest particle that is not dependent on having some parts, at least direction, you know, directional parts. And if it has directional parts, then, you know, it should be able to be broken up into those directional parts somehow. Okay?
So you look and look and look trying to find something that's real that doesn't depend on something else. And you can't find anything that's real that doesn't depend. Everything depends on something else. Everything is dependent on parts. So it's interesting, you know, when you look at people, to see all their parts instead of see the person. Yeah? Kind of as if you have, um, you know, laser vision. Didn't Superman do that? You know? Superman would look at things and everything would kind of get zapped into different parts or something happened. I have some vague memory from my childhood like that. Huh? Yeah, he x-rayed visioned and then they just kind of, yeah. So everything depends on parts in that way. Yeah. And then when we just see parts, then that we don't, you know, with a special kind of mind that just sees parts, then we don't see the whole. Then we see how the whole is really merely labeled. And if the whole is merely labeled, then what is there to get attached to about the whole? Yeah? What is there to get attached to? Because you see, it's really just a label on that thing. On that collection, I should say. Okay. So we can't reach the smallest particle, you know, and what we come up with is that all composite things depend on parts, you know, and anything that is dependent cannot be independent. And independent is the meaning of inherent existence. It doesn't depend on anything else. It, it exists under its own power, by its own force. So Shantideva continues in verse 87, Who with discernment would be attached to a body that is like a dream? Since a body does not truly exist, then what is male and what is female? Okay. So who with discernment would be attached to a body that is like a dream? Yeah. Now, when you dream, and you dream of some really attractive person, that person seems so real in your dream. When you wake up, you realize there's no attractive person there. Absolutely no attractive person there. Sometimes we want to go back to sleep because we want to dream about that attractive person again. Yeah, we're disappointed that there's no attractive person there. But in the same way that there's no attractive person there, when you have a nightmare and you wake up, you realize there's no monster there either. Yeah. So who would want to be attached to a body in a dream? And who would want to be afraid of a monster in a dream? Yeah. When children wake up with a nightmare, we say, oh, sweetie, there, there's no monster in your dream. You were just dreaming. There's no real monster. But when we dream of an attractive person, we want to go back to sleep. <laughs> You see how foolish we are? How totally stupid we are? Yeah? 
that that person we dreamt about is as real as the monster that we're telling the child doesn't exist. Yeah. So there's no dream person there. So the people that we see here, that we find attractive or unattractive or whatever, are actually like dreams. They appear to be real, that there's a real person there, a real attractive body there. But when we check and we analyze, there isn't. Yeah, the same way the dream appears when you're dreaming, but when you wake up, you analyze and you see there was nobody, you know, nothing there. Okay? So we have to really kind of put this kind of analysis to ourselves and not let our ignorant mind say, yes, but, yeah, which is what we're doing. Hmm? Yeah, it's merely labeled, but there's really something in there. Yeah. What's in there is our fantasy. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Okay, so although things are empty of true existence, they're not totally non-existent. How do they exist? Like dreams, in that they exist, they don't exist the way they appear. Okay, so a dream, something appears real, it's not, it's not real. Okay, there's the appearance in the dream. Yeah. There's the appearance of the attractive person. There's the appearance of the monster. But there's no person. There's no attractive person. And there's no monster. So in the same way, there's appearance of, in our waking times, there's the appearance of a truly existent person. There's the appearance of a truly existent body. But there's actually no truly existent body, no truly existent person there. So since we cannot find the person who's feeling affection for someone, then a hallucination? So since we can't find the person who's feeling affection for them, a hallucination? If you see the person, if your affection is attachment, that's based on hallucination. Okay? If you're seeing that there's no person there, but... What is appearing as a person, the conventionally existent person, has been kind to you and you have a feeling of affection for that person that exists by merely appearing, not any other way but as a mere appearance, then that affection is valid. Okay? But if you're seeing the person that you're having the affection for as anything more than a mere appearance, then it's going to be very easy for uh, um, attachment to creep in. And when there's attachment, yeah, then the affection gets contaminated because the attachment reifies it. And then we have attachment therefore affection for this person, but not for that person. And we have attachment for them because they look good, but no 
or we have affection for this one because they look good and no affection for that one because they don't look good. Yeah, And that's completely based on hallucination. But if you see that both of these people exist merely as appearances and that they've both been kind to you in the past and you have affection for both of them equally based on that and you're not holding them as truly existent people then you then it's fine she can see that we have a ways to go don't we <laughs> yeah because even though we can get ourselves to think, you know, we, we think of different people. We think, okay, they were, they were my mother in a previous life. They were kind to me. Or they were my best friend in a previous life. They were kind to me. So, you know, we, we kind of get that. And we say, oh, yeah, they were all really kind to me. And we can generate affection based on that. But that affection is not going to be real stable because as soon as our mind starts grasping at a truly existent person and discriminating an attractive from an unattractive one, then we're going to forget all about the fact that they've been equally kind. Okay? Unless we really, really train our mind well, but then that's going to involve seeing the attraction and or the you know the attractiveness and the non-attractiveness as not existing from the side of the body you know the person but existing as a de- as an appearance dependent on many factors yeah and then you're going to say but you know if i find somebody attractive there's got to be something in them that's attractive i mean i'm not hallucinating but if, if that's true, if there's something in them that's attractive, then everybody should see that thing in them that's attractive. But the person we think attractive is attractive. Somebody else doesn't. Why? Because the attraction we're seeing is a dependent appearance. And part of that is depending on our mind, you know, having an idea of what we consider attractive and not attractive. I had a a friend in Israel who was, um, I think she was a a physical therapist actually, and she was telling me that she was treating this one old man, you know, and he was like so old and so decrepit and he often smelled And, you know, he was really kind of, you know, he wasn't going to be around a whole lot longer. And, you know, she had to really over, you know, she said, she told me that she really did this meditation of, you know, she's been my mother in the previous life and he's been kind to me. Because she had to do something to overcome her sense of revulsion for him so that she could go treat him. But then one day his wife walked in and they had been married, I don't know, 50, 60 years or something. And she came in and, and was with him and she looked at my friend and said, isn't he beautiful? Isn't he precious? You know? And that's what the wife saw. She saw this beautiful, precious person there. Yeah? 
So, you know, if the attractiveness we were seeing, that we see, or on the part of my friend, if the repulsiveness she's seeing exists objectively in the person, they should both see him in the same way. But they don't, you know, because the causes and conditions that are leading to their perception of him are very, very different. So they're having different perceptions. Questions? Uh-huh. So I know you've talked about this before, but why is it that we hear the correct information and then we still, I still don't think it's like a scarecrow. I still don't think it's so clear. Yeah. I mean, why is that? Okay, so why is it that we, we hear the teachings and we kind of, we follow it and it makes sense. And yet, inside we don't really believe it. It kind of springs back. Yeah, the, you know, our old vision springs back. Why? Because ignorance is beginningless and we're very habituated to it. Yeah? How do we not be discouraged? <laughs> <laughs> By, how do we not be discouraged? By seeing that every time... We think about this, our mind gets a little bit clearer. Yeah, every time, every time we get a little, little bit clearer. Yeah, so in the same way, you get that last egg and then you have the dozen. At some point, we're going to get some extra little bit of clarity that's going to push us into a direct realization of emptiness. Okay? There's this thing of accumulating the causes. Okay. So we have to stop here. Next time we'll get into the, the part where it says what is male and what is female. Spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path And all spiritual friends who practice it have long life May I pacify completely all outer and inner hindrances Grant such inspiration I pray May the lives of the venerable spiritual masters be stable and their divine actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Lotus teachings dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. Nuranam mandala kaniryatayami Due to this merit may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow 
May that bourne have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain parent you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful tenting Gatso Chenresi, may you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders who spread the view of dependent arising and non-violent actions in the ten directions and especially at Shravasti Abbey in the West Florida.